Welcome to the Teacher's Podcast, in association with Classroom Secrets, the podcast that's here to help teachers. Whether it's discussing the latest issues in education or sharing top tips for use in the classroom, if you work in education or want to know more about the sector, then this is the podcast for you. Now, please welcome your host, former teacher, life-work balance advocate and successful business owner, Claire Riley. Hi everyone and thanks for listening. In this episode, I interviewed EAL education consultant Beth Southern to talk about all things EAL. I found the topic really interesting as during the interview, Beth correctly pointed out that specialising in EAL during a PGCE isn't a thing, despite some schools having 100% of their children speaking English as their second or third language. Many teachers have children in their classrooms whose first language isn't English, yet on the whole, we as educators receive little or no training to best support our students. Do we need to be looking deeper into research and equipping all teachers to support EAL learners? Would the skills and techniques learnt by teachers be useful to students across the board? I enjoyed exploring this topic with Beth, and I hope that you find the conversation useful. Let's get to the interview. So, Beth, thank you so much for joining me on the Teachers Podcast today. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you. So, I had you recommended by John Murray, who was on a few weeks ago, and Lee Parkinson, who was on a few weeks before that. Um, I feel like I'm only interviewing teachers from the Northwest right now. Well, you know. (laughs) Um, We're all here. (laughs) Yeah, and um, well, you know, there's a bit of rivalry seen as we are in Yorkshire. Um, So I am going to get to other people in the country, but thank you so much for joining me. I know it's going to be a fantastic interview because we've had a chat um, last week and everything that you said was really interesting. So I always ask everyone to give me um, kind of a journey into and throughout teaching just to kind of prove why you're worth listening to as Uh well. Um, So do you want to give me that journey? Yes, no problem. So it was not a direct uh, journey into teaching at all. I went to university to do a law degree. Every intention of becoming a barrister, that was what I was going to do. Um, And I remember in the first year them saying to us, uh, only a third of you will go on to actually practice law. And we all went, no, of course we're going to do it. And actually it's interesting because... Of all my friends, um, none of us are practicing law now. So it was it was true. Um, so in my second year, I got involved with skydiving, randomly. Um, decided then that the club wasn't being run very well, so I sort of took on the club as president and grew it from there. Um, and we went to a new um, club where we went to, to skydive. And it was just there, really, that made me think, I really enjoy working with people and I really I enjoy imagine it. <laughs> training people. <laughs> What, scared? Have you never done one? No, I know, I'm scared of heights. I never want to do one ever. Oh, it is, am- it is amazing. And I would say everybody should have a go. I did about, by the end, I think I'd done about 250 jumps at that point. Um, and I just love working with people and seeing people develop and, and, and overcome these fears yeah. and sort of making them realise that they can do it. And it, it's, it isn't easy, but it's, it's really worth doing. Yeah. And it gave me enough of a, a doubt over my sort of career direction to think, right, I'm not going to go to law school after because it's really expensive and I need to be sure. Um, so I did a bit of a random a random thing with my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband. Uh, we decided to apply to um, an international boarding school in Somerset where we went to become graduate residential assistants. So we sort of went to work in the boarding houses to do loads of sports activities with the kids. Um, and it was all international kids, so it was students from overseas. And it was there really where I just decided 
I want to, I want to get into some teaching. Now, there, because it was an international school, they had subject specialist teachers who did GCSE, but they also had um, like TEFL type teachers who did a lot of the really intensive English input. Mm -hmm. So they said to me, right, if you want to go and do the Trinity, so TESOL, then we'll pay for you to do it, and then you can come and do some teaching. Brilliant, so I did it. And so that's really, that was the m first major step into teaching at that point, mm -hmm, which was followed mm -hmm. on by the PGCE and um, working. I went to Manchester to try and get into a really high EAL sort of school, which I did in my side. So just about the TESOL, how did you find that, given that we've, you know, we never learn anything like that in school because I I looked into that and it's really hard. It is. I think it was the hardest qualification and I've done a master's since and I think I still think it's the hardest qualification I did and it was one month full time um, and I would say if you're looking to do something like that then to do that that one, do one of these like the, the Trinity uh, because it's just intense and you just learn so much and obviously you know, when we were school age, we didn't do as much grammar as they do now. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, it didn't come into the Saturday, I think it was 2013 I think. Mm -hmm. um, so sort of prior to that we we didn't really have that kind of understanding no. so for me it was really really insightful and I, I i fully i actually really learned that's what it felt like i felt like i was really learning something yeah. um like things like the the phonemic chart and things yeah. that's really, really interesting and it gives you a really good understanding into sort of language background and yeah. groups of words and um I, I had i did latin at gcse quite randomly as well which i think helped yeah, um, yeah. with a lot of with a lot of that but i did find it really hard and i do think probably t most teachers should probably do it or at least do a big chunk of it as part of teacher training oh, yeah this is it you know we're not we don't get training on that kind of thing you're no. just expected to know it yeah 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 so yeah so i would say that was the hardest probably the hardest teaching qualification i've done mm -hmm. but very rewarding yeah so sorry i broke you off so you did your tesol training yeah Went back to the school, to the international school, worked there for a couple of years mm -hmm. um, as a teacher and then I was a, a house parent there um, and then decided, right, I'm going to go and do the PGC and chose to do primary. I felt it was quite flexible. It would give me lots of opportunity with different subjects. Mm -hmm. um, wanted to do something focused on the AL, but it doesn't exist, so, um, which I found quite surprising. Uh, and then so basically decided, right, I'm going, to, I'm going to carve my own path out here. I'm going to go and do a school centre PGCE, so I've got lots of experience. Mm -hmm. I did that up in Cumbria and then... I'm going to go to Manchester and apply for, apply for jobs there. So I've got a job in a in a school in Moss Side, very high EAL um, yeah. intake, um, but the, good experience. Yeah, brilliant experience. And the, and the provision that they had wasn't brilliant, despite the fact they had about eighty percent EAL. So I did right. the, the NQT year, and then decided really I just was very pushy, and I decided I wanted to take that on, and I got them some yeah. funding, um, and in the end I got head of EAL there, mm -hmm. um, and I did that for four. I was there for four years. And it was just brilliant because it was a three to eighteen school. I had like, my own little team. We went to Ofsted, um, and it all was all really, really positive. Um, in that time, I also had um, my first child. Um, so then I started doing part time. Then I was I got expecting my second child, and it just all became a bit too much. We were living in up in Bury, yeah. and the, the commute was too much really. So at that point, I decided I was not going to go back after having the second one, um, and that's really the only reason why at that point I chose to leave leave teaching in that regard um yeah. I still went back doing sort of supply and things and consultancy mm -hmm. work for the council um but yeah so that brings me sort of up to pretty much up to last year really mm -hmm. so what did you do last year so last year I was doing consultancy working for the council um as like a leading teacher of VAL um and then decided I, I still can't make this work I've now got three children 
it's hard just to be there for I'm missing things like Christmas plays yeah, um, yeah. I'm, I'm always on the minutes trying to get back from you know I, I'll, I'll take sometimes to go to a school and say did you finish at quarter past three or half past three because I might be able to make it back um, yeah, yeah. the school that my kids are at doesn't have brilliant wraparound care so it's not particularly easy for working mums or dads um, so I just thought you know people keep asking me you know what EAR resources can we use what sites do you recommend where can we go yeah, into yeah. this where, and, and I kept sort of you know, I couldn't really think of anywhere specific that was specifically, you know, created for that reason, pedagogically sound and, you know, well re- researched. And I just thought, I can do this. I need to I need to go and do this. It was a big, massive leap um, around about last March, April time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just took 16 weeks off mm-hmm. and built websites, built all the resources and launched the AL Hub last year on the 1st of July. And so that was it, really. That was like a massive jump into what I was doing. And I, I gave myself a very strict time frame because yeah. I was like, I'm not yeah. working for that period of time. My husband was brilliantly supportive. Um, and he picked up the slack with the kids and the extra work. And, and, it, and, it, and it launched in July and it's just been a roller coaster. Yes. Yeah. Really good. I'm so sure July done. 2018. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, no, I understand yeah. <laughs> completely. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing, though, um, because it can be really difficult to find resources or even understand what kind of resources would be suitable or what you know what would work yes yeah it isn't some things do work that you can get off you know there are more sites out there for things like um special needs type websites mm-hmm. and some of those resources do work they just don't all work uh, yeah. and and it's you know there's lots of things that you can do with the al um yeah that they just weren't, wasn't getting tapped into i felt i felt there was a real gap i do i do feel like there is there is a massive gap just in learning as well because I don't feel like I know very much about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do think it's really interesting because I, um, obviously you mentioned on the call about in PGCEs, sometimes you only get a few hours. Yeah. And, and I actually remember that session. I don't really remember very much, but I remember the EAL session. Um, partly, I think, because we went to a different room. And the only thing I remember, it was an ICT suite, but we didn't do anything on the computers. Right. So it was very awkward because there was no space. Um, but I remember them talking about it like a tree um, where you'd have, um, I don't know, say the word apple, and then all the different languages would be on that tree. And that's the only thing I can remember about it. But can I say that that's helped to me? No, because no. that's all I know. It is. I have to say, even now, so I did my training 12 years ago and even now fast forward 12 years and and you look at the kind of intake we're getting in schools now and the number of schools with the AL pupils is massive mm. and yet we're still not really training our teachers to teach no. um and you know we're getting schools who have an influx of students come in and they're just flummoxed and they don't know what to do they're like well where do we begin what should we do yeah, yeah. what's the best practice now and I don't understand why there isn't more training out there why it isn't yeah, a yeah. bigger part of doing a PGCE or a I don't know if when you do a B.Ed. It might be a bigger part. Probably not. But I often go and do sort of these PGC skip type sessions, and I get two and a half hours, and that's it. That is their input for the year. And I stand there and think, what am I going to tell them in two and a half hours? It's really, really going to help. Yeah. And I just have to really, you know, try really hard to focus on the key yeah. areas. But, but really, it needs to be longer. It needs it? to be at least a day. And to be honest, more if you think you spend so much longer doing the, the literacy side of it and numeracy side of it and all those areas of how to teach and this is how to teach as well and, and you get lots of student teachers that come away thinking there's a magical way to teach EAL kids and we've got to do certain things or it's we've never I've got I don't know how to do it but yeah. actually you do know how to do it because it's just like teaching anybody else it's just keeping certain things in mind and being yeah. aware of strategies yeah. and scaffolding that you can use to make it a bit easier make it more accessible really yeah it'd be interesting to know how many teachers in the UK actually have 
at least one EAL child in their class um, because it would kind of sort of throw out there how how important it is, I yeah, guess. Yeah, the need, really. Um, okay, so I've got quite a few questions um, from <clears throat> yeah. the team. So I always put it out to the team and they've, they've asked some really good questions. So Lindsay, um, she wants to know how much adult support should be given to EAL students? Okay, so really as much as they need is the answer. So all the EAL students are different. You can't say that we've got an EAL student and they're like that EAL student. You know, it might be, it's very dependent on your classroom. How many other students do you have that maybe speak that language? How many other EAL students do you have? Mm -hmm. What is the need of that child? Where, what's their background? How long have they been in the country for? Really, it is very much about the child. And so don't assume just because you've got an EAL child come in that they're going to be a refugee with a horrible background. It might be that they've come in Mum and dad have come to work in the NHS and, and, we've, and we've picked up this child from, from Pakistan and they've come to work and they've got a really good experience of education and those children probably need less adult support. Yeah. So really, it's, it's sort of like thinking about the children in general in a classroom situation. You have children that are more needy than others and need more support. There are, adult support is not the only way with the AL children. So it's thinking about what, what is the best way to support them. Yeah. Is it with a peer? Is it with some form of scaffolding with the, you know, in regards to differentiation? Is it with an adult? Is it in an intervention? Mm -hmm. So it's really thinking about what, you know, what level is that child at? What is their level of need at this time? And, and how much English do they already know? Because, yeah. you know, they don't all come with nothing. Knowing, yes, with exactly. nothing. And yes. often they, they, they do come with more and they might just be, it might just be that they're very shy and that they've uprooted and they've left all their friends behind and they don't want to speak. And that's fair enough. You know, if, if, I, if I got uprooted and got plonked into a classroom in, in Russia or China, I might not want to speak for a while either. Yeah. So, And I guess it depends as well. I mean, obviously your example was, um, you know, they might have come from Pakistan. Well, I guess, you know, there will be situations where that's happened and there might be other children in the class that actually can speak, mm. um, you yeah, know, so actually whatever the best language they're speaking. Exactly, yeah. the best support could be that they are buddied up with a peer and, and, and I'm going to talk later on about using the first language, but using first language is fine and, and, and teachers are afraid of it sometimes and feel like that they need to sort of stop that and say, no, we need, you know, we need to speak English and it, it is absolutely fine for them to use the first language. We, we should celebrate that language and they need to, yeah. to keep using it. Thank you. Um, right, okay. Um, so, Lindsay again. Um, so, she says, as we all know, uh, children are amazing at picking up other languages um, and they also tend to pick things up much quicker through their peers. How could that be rolled out in the classroom, sort of learning from others? Um, generally, it's thinking about how to group EAL children is important. So um, it's different between primary and secondary. Often you find in secondary that, uh, that unfortunately, EAL children tend to get put in lower sets. Mm -hmm. And it just, seems to, it just seems to happen time and time again. They go into lower sets uh, and they might have other children in there with other additional needs. They might have children in their behavioural difficulties. And then it's really hard for them to find a good role model of English. Yeah. So in those situations, you know, you've got to try and sort of... You do want them to use their peers, their peers just support them, but it's finding children that are going to be able to do that. In primary, sometimes it's easier because you have your sort of slightly more able group and you have your, it's best to put the EAL children in there. Then they can sort of scaffold each other and they work from there. Again, also using play. They can see what they're aiming for. Yes, and they can see and they can say, right, this is a good model of, of what I need to do. This is where I'm going to aim. They're hearing the language that's often, you know, they, and often you get these children that speak really well and then yeah. they can pick that up. Yeah. But also bringing in more, role play more speaking listening into lessons mm -hmm. you know I've been to, to um, primary classrooms and even in year five where they've still got a role play area because they've got a lot of EAL students mm -hmm. and it's really useful for them to, to change that around almost like in early years yes. and they create situations where those they can go and you know ask questions as though they were in a shop situation or they can ask questions and if, if things are going to come yeah. across day after day in real life 
And I think sometimes schools are afraid that things are going to be too babyish or too young. But if that's what the students need, it's what the students need. And like you said, they pick it up from each other yeah and that, play. that's really interesting because actually um we're actually looking at more continuous provision um and and possibly scaling that up so you know there's another example of where it could be used in key stage two for Definitely. eal students Definitely. i'll be passing that on because they'll love are. that yeah. and they will be listening anyway <laughs> um okay another question from lindsay i feel like she's monopolized yeah. <laughs> the questions she just she obviously she's just interested she did good ones um so how could we as you know, classroom secrets support EAL. Um, it's a tricky one. I think I think EAL is a kind of a specialism. So it is a specialism, and it's fairly niche, which is why you don't have very many EAL type resource sites out there because mm-hmm. they tend to be tagged onto other things. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes when they are tagged onto other things, it's not quite as it's not quite as well researched and yeah, pedagogical no, sound. So I think that either you need to get an EAL specialist in mm-hmm. to help work with you to, to, to think about you know what is what's best practice what should we be doing what how can we support or signpost towards sites that already do it mm-hmm. um, so I, I think I just think in general either do it properly and get somebody in to do it for you and, and somebody who can tell you you know exactly what needs to be done do the research do the background mm-hmm. um, or yeah or it sometimes gets tagged on and it makes it difficult I think but generally, lots of picture resources as well, lots of flash yeah. stars and that kind of and, thing. And I also think there's um, the specialist things, but then, like you said before, there are other things that just work as yeah. well. And yeah, just and there will be loads work. of resources you already have that do work. Um, and, it, and that's the thing, interesting thing, actually, about EAL Hub, is that we have a lot of resources on there, which obviously were the primary focus of the EAL. We have loads of people come to us now and say, we're using it for children with additional needs. We're using it for children who've got poor vocabulary, who are, you know, British children in perhaps deprived areas. And they're using it for that reason as well. So those resources are quite universal in that sense. I think in some ways, it's not necessarily about the resources. It's about who's delivering it. Yeah. Um, So it's it's a difficult one. Um, Okay. So Atifa says, uh, what strategies and interventions can be put in place to support EAL children to work independently? Okay, so if you want them to work independently, then you have to give them the resources to do that. So imagine, if you imagine that you were you were um, going to another country, say you were learning some French and you were in a French classroom and they wanted you to do an activity, then think about what would be useful for you in order to succeed in that activity. So thinking about topic um, maps, thinking about flashcards, thinking about images, but also before you get to that point where you want them to work independently, thinking about really good pre-teaching, thinking about really good input. So obviously, if we're wanting them to work independently, we need to get them to that point where they can work independently. And once they're at that point, we need to give them the resources they need to not have to keep asking or to not be, you know, not sure. So bilingual dictionaries are useful. Um, Flashcards, topic maps, images, lots of things to basically break down what it is that you're looking at Mm -hmm. and allow them to go, right, I've got all these things in front of me. I'm going to, you know, I can do it from this point forward. Um, And again, lots of modelling from from the teacher Mm -hmm. prior to, to... for the independent work Mm -hmm. and I guess really you know that pre-teaching it's useful for everybody isn't it yeah even though you're um, absolutely you're targeting specific parts to your EAL students Um, so Jade says just find it here um, so what strategies and interventions can be used to improve writing and reading of EAL children who are more advanced in the acquisition of English well, it, it is really important to remember that children that are, have EAL, <coughs> excuse me, are not, that do not have special needs. Yes. So children that are doing well, generally, can do what everybody else is doing. So in, in that regard, it's thinking if they're making really good progress, 
then move them along with everybody else, keep them in the lessons, make sure that they're in the top groups, make sure that they're, they're able to make that rapid progress. I think in regards to reading and writing, I'm a massive advocate of picture books. So I always think that they should use picture books all the way through primary and into secondary. I've used them with secondary groups in Key Stage 3 because picture books are amazing because they have really good language, mm -hmm. um, really good images to support. <clears throat> and then they also have the whole of a story so that, you know, an EAL learner can see how a character moves up and down. They can see the different tension in the book. They can see a whole complete story in a short period of time. So I say, you know, use picture books as a really good model of what writing should look like. Mm -hmm. So they get the opportunity to read, they get the opportunity to write, and then obviously that then builds on comprehension as well. Mm -hmm. So really, I think using picture books is important for all students, not just EAL students, but particularly EAL students because it gives them an opportunity to see a really good piece of work that's concise, that they're able to manage themselves, mm -hmm. um, and that they can they can go away and say, right, this is how writing needs to look, this is how this happens, this is how a story flows. Yeah, And it's just re they're really useful picture books high-quality picture books. Cool, thank you. I feel like they've been rec recommended quite a lot yeah, on the podcast. <laughs> they have. Um, so, Ellen says, how would you begin teaching EAL, um, uh, teaching, te sorry, teaching an EAL child who arrives from a country that uses a different alphabet system, so like uh, Cyrillic or Arabic or something like that? Okay, so... Um, <clears throat> this is quite common. Obviously, you get lots of children that come from, from countries where they speak Arabic or Russian or Chinese. <clears throat> That's not my voice today. Um, so the first thing I would say is to try and have some understanding of different languages. So, for example, if you have a child that's come from um, Russia, in Russia, they don't use articles at all in their language. So it's having that understanding. So when they start to write or sp speak and they might say, I, um, I put on table... That's because they missed out there because it's an article and they don't use them in their language. So yeah. it's being able to say, right, that's that's a throwback from directly translating yeah, from Russian yeah. into English. So having an idea of, first of all, what kind of patterns and, and, and ways that they speak. Mm -hmm. Same with Arabic. They don't have upper and lowercase in Arabic. So you'll often find that Arabic learners will mix them up when they're writing in English because they don't. They just write them any which way. They don't understand that there's a difference between the two. Yeah. So having an, an idea of that will, first of all, put you in a position to think, right, this is because of this. This is why this is happening. Yeah. It's quite common. This is just, a, how the, we can... just for not getting it. This is There's good reasons for this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So having an idea of, of what their language looks like, first of all, is important. And secondly, um, having an... Uh, actually, there are links between different languages, which is what I was, we were briefly talking about before. Have you got... Have you, just, just thinking about that, obviously I'm thinking, right, well, when it comes to Russian... I've got an understanding of, of, of Serbian a bit and then it's very similar, so I know all that and yeah. I'm thinking of um, my husband's auntie. Like, she says that, I put on table. Even though English is quite good, she says yeah. things like that. Where do people find this information out, though? You know, where would you suggest that they find out about the language, like an overview of the language? Well, the, we talk about language um, and the different sort of the similarities and differences is, called, is cognates. So basically, when there is a, a word in a language that is similar to another word in another language, it's called a cognate. And so there often will there's kind of trees of language and it's kind of moving into linguistics a bit but we have like indo-european languages and there's connections between these languages mm -hmm. and and you'll often find that that children do find similarities and differences for example between spanish and english about 40% of english words have a cognate in spanish right that's why spanish is an easier language for us to learn as english right. speakers but if you look at welsh which comes from a gaelic yeah. the gaelic side which comes from a different branch of the tree it doesn't have very many overlaps. So we are more closely connected by language to Spanish than we are 
to Welsh. Right, okay. So going back to thinking about these languages, like Arabic and Cyrillic. like next to us. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and Scottish as well. So Scottish and Welsh have links yeah, yeah. in Ireland, but not English. We're, we're weird in the middle. There are some links in Wales, uh, in Welsh language to Latin. And, in and German, do we not have quite a lot of links to German? Yeah, yeah, we do. And it, it all comes from basically having being invaded, really. And we, yeah. we picked our language up from a lot of different places. Yeah. But going back to your question about sort of Cyrillic languages, there was... An interesting story for you. Uh, there was a, um, a guy, uh, he was a judge, and he was in India, and it was in the late 1700s, 1780, I think he was, and he was called William Jones. And he was implementing um, the British legal system over in India to do with colonisation. And he wanted to learn some um, Sanskrit. That's what he wanted. He wanted to learn some Sanskrit, which obviously is written not with a Western alphabet. So he was like, I'm going to find some, some words between the two that I can put into judgments and things. So, you know, when I'm passing judgment, I can have some Sanskrit in there. And he was amazed to find, even all that time ago, that there was a, a lot of words in Sanskrit that were similar to words in Western languages. And actually, unbeknownst to him at the time, he had sort of discovered a forgotten mother tongue, which is called Proto-Indo-European language. Um, and that was all that time ago, he was discovering that. And it turns out that that's a prehistoric ancient language from which loads of other languages have formed. So things like Russian, Indian languages, European languages, which is why we do have these connections between them. Um, and I had, I don't, people have always seen this, but I have this, this here gives you an idea of cognates. Put it up at that. Um, you can see it a little bit. It's not very well written out, but. So for example, cognates there in English, Latin and Sanskrit. So for example, nine in English is nine, obviously nine. Latin is noem and Sanskrit is nava. Snake is serpent in Latin, in, in Sanskrit it's sarpa. King is Regim in its Raja, and God is uh, Diwis, which comes from Divine, and it's Diwas in Sanskrit. So you can see that there are connections. Although we say these children come and they haven't got, they haven't got the, the same alphabet as us, they still have a lot of the same sounds as us, and they're able to find these connections. So the big thing is, we look at etymology a lot these days. It's kind of quite en vogue, isn't it, to say, right, let's look at, let's look at the Greek and the Latin yeah. background of words but what actually we, we need modern. to go yes we need to go further back than that and say right we've got children that's that have come from um india we've got children that, that speak sanskrit and and things and we need to actually look at what they what they bring with them and there are connections so it's just because they come from a language um background without a western alphabet doesn't mean that they don't have the connections so really that's that's what we we're talking about when i was talking about cognates and and looking a little bit further afield wow I've just like schooled, completely schooled. You did tell me I would be <laughs> before. Um, super, right. So Ivan says, um, although schools try their best to support EAL students in school, could anything be done to support them at home? So the parents might struggle with English and they might be unable to support with the homework, extracurricular activities, etc. What advice would you give to teachers who want to support the parents as well? Um, I think two things here that spring to mind. The first one is it's important for it's important for teachers to know that per, that the first language is really important and that we must encourage them to still use the first language at home, particularly if parents don't have a really good grasp of the second language of English. So we want them to encourage that first language because they need to keep it up in order to learn the second language. So research has shown that if they've got a really solid base for the first language and they continue with that, they will do better learning English or the second language or might yeah. be the third language. So first, first of all, it's not saying that they need to speak English. You get parents that come in and say, I don't speak enough English. Um, what can I do? It doesn't matter. Keep up with the first language. Mm -hmm. Encourage them to read in the first language if they can. Um, have lots of those things around the house. But then in regards to helping, 
it's really important that we make parents feel welcome in in school. And I did um, when I was doing my master's degree, I did a study in the school that I was in in Moss Side, and it was a pet, it was a, a study on mothers, um, and it was on their use of English, and, and we were looking into why we had quite low turnout for parents' evenings, um, and why. Well, just in general, looking at mothers, and it was very interesting because it would—it was the children would say to us, "It's the mum that would try and help them at home. It's the mum that would do homework, but actually they didn't speak English, mm. or but then they didn't come to parents' evening. But then dad didn't often come to parents' evening either because it was mum's responsibility. But their mum didn't come for numerous other reasons, cultural reasons, the fact that she felt that she might come in and not be able to understand, the fact that she wasn't allowed to come without a male relative, but then the male relatives didn't come. Mm. So we did a study and we brought these mothers in and we offered them English classes and they absolutely jumped at it. And some of these mums had been in the country for 20 years and they hadn't learned any English for many, many reasons. They'd been busy having children. They weren't allowed to go to classes um, unless they were all female, which didn't weren't always available. Um, so they kind of jumped at these and they did amazingly well. We learned so much culturally about supporting and about what we need to do as a school yeah. in order to make them feel more welcome and they just felt really daunted they'd had a bad experience of education themselves or they just felt that people would think they were stupid um, and and it was just really about making them feel no what you can bring is really important you are raising this child and we can assist you with that and we can send home things to help you know if re for example reading is not always doing reading folders and writing in the book is not always sort of something that parents understand what to you know what to do in regards to that so we send home um like a a sheet that says what they need to do and it's got images on it and we talk about how you sit together with your child and you do the reading the best you can yeah yeah and you know this we would like you to write in the book if you can or you can just put you know a tick yeah. or can, an explanation you know, of what you have to really. do if if they can't write my child read really well then just tick and then basically we know as teachers that you've sat and you've tried to read with your child and that's yeah. enough that is yeah. all that is enough and it's getting them to understand that that's okay as long as they're sort of trying to support we'd rather that nothing nothing and we can't expect them to know what we want them to do without you know giving them some idea telling them first another thing as well is uh, one other thing is i've been to lots of schools where they just invite parents in for different reasons it might be for toddler groups it might be for they do sometimes have parenting classes it might be for ict classes or english classes and it's just finding ways to see whether we could bring the community in um, and once you sort of make them feel really valued, you know, do a language of the month, invite parents into it to enjoy to enjoy that and celebrate that language. And also, I guess it educates you as a member of staff as well, because sometimes you might not really be aware of, you know, how much English a parent might know. And it, yeah. I guess that would help you Absolutely. understand, really. Understand why perhaps homework's not getting done or yeah. why, <clears throat> you know, lo loads of things. It came to light, you know, some of our children were doing very late night classes it came to light that they were doing weekend classes in, in mosque school and things and we were like oh that makes sense why they're you know they're not getting time to get the other work done or they're not or they're tired or you know different things are happening and it's just being very culturally aware of, of different things that go on in, in these children's lives it's not like mm. it's not necessarily the same as, as everybody else who goes home and sits down and does the work yeah, yeah. it's actually sometimes a real struggle for these kids mm. and for the parents as well it's, a, it's really hard because they don't feel they can support so I think really educating the parents where you can giving them everything they need to try and support their children mm -hmm. um, and, and just setting them up setting them up really to succeed rather than to fail really yeah Thank you. And um, okay, so Jade has said, just making sure. Okay, so how much should schools and teachers try to translate work or text or information from lessons into a pupil's first language? So she's worked abroad, and um, she says the SA, uh, the SLT and EAL teachers had very different views as to how beneficial it was to translate into their own language. I think it depends how you're translating. So. Google Translate. Google Translate 
is generally not very good. And you often will see people, you know, in these sort of social media groups who say, what can I do? And everyone goes, use Google Translate. And it's, it has its place sometimes, maybe one word translation or, you know, but it really is not brilliant. I guess it's fine if you're if you're an adult and and you really understand how that should be presented. But when you're a child and you're still learning how that language should be presented, and then it's all in a different, exactly. <laughs> different order. Exactly. And also, just it's wrong. Sometimes it's just wrong. And you, I've, yeah. I've seen the most hilarious Google translation. You just think, oh, I hope they didn't see that. You know, like because yeah, sometimes, yeah. or you might. You, I've seen teachers who've typed it on the board and then it's come up with something, and the, and the kids are all laughing and they're like, this, this is really wrong. It's not right. <laughs> It's not right. Um, so really, Google Translate, use with caution. Yeah. In regards to translation of, um, generally speaking, resources don't need to be translated. I think if we can support them with really good um, sort of pictures and images and or, you know, use some video clip or use something in order to make the concept more relatable, then that is better than translating the work per se. If a teacher or a TA speaks the same language as a child, then that's fine. You know, if there might be occasions when they, they can explain things informally in, in their first language and they're able to sort of share that information. The same with if you've got two children, we mentioned about peers who speak the same language. It's fine for them to chat about things in the first language before them going back into English. And would you recommend if you've got a school, um, so say you said 80% had EAL yeah. and imagine most of those children actually speak the same language, yeah. would you recommend uh, having a member of staff who, you know, is specifically employed to go around and help them um, who speaks that language? I think sometimes it's useful. I think if you can get sort of TAs and things that are in class who are able to do that for some classes, it's really useful. Um, I think sometimes you've got to be careful that the children don't become reliant on it and, yeah. and, and rather than sort of they know that somebody's there and they can they just ask them all the time it's fine to use the first language but obviously we are encouraging them to grow and develop and learn the in English language. yeah it's useful as well for schools if to have somebody like that for translation at things like parents evenings yeah. Yeah, those sorts yeah. of events are really useful yeah. um, and I've seen schools that do kind of some schools do like training video clips and things you know that they send to parents and they and they can send out information about these sorts of you know, school trips or about how to do this or how yeah. to do what school to letters. I worked yeah. in a school where school letters have to be translated as well. Yeah. So in those situations, it's useful to be able to send that information out to parents. But in a classroom situation, I think that the, you know, generally speaking, it's done in English and um, the method of instruction is English and, and the resources are in English, but we scaffold and support with other things that will help them with some informal maybe conversation or, you know, between peers or TAs and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Cool, thank you. Um, I'm really grilling you today, aren't I? I feel like I am. <laughs> um, okay, so a child comes into your class then with no English and no notice. Where do you start? <laughs> so they're already there. This happened to me. <laughs> uh, I think if you turn up on a Monday morning and they are literally in the school playground and they're about to come in, there's very little that you can do at that point other than make them feel extremely welcome and try and, you know, this child, you don't know where they've come from, you don't know you know what situation they're in um, from, from a sort of mental health point of view and the only thing you can do is be very welcoming um, and try and find them you know a buddy system try and get a buddy in place as quickly as possible you can find somebody that speaks the same first language brilliant if you can't get a couple of buddies it's always better to have two than one because it is quite a it's actually quite a, a big ask for a child to be a buddy for somebody yeah. who doesn't speak very much English because it's frustrating sometimes and, and yeah. it's tiring so have a couple so that you, they can sort of And share. also they can feel like they can't have their own break times and exactly. things. Yeah, yeah, because they ha and they can't necessarily be with their own friends because their friends have or oh, they're looking after that person. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, a couple of a couple of buddies is useful. Um <clears throat> so the very first day really it's about meeting basic needs and thinking, right, 
thinking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs a bit, thinking about the bottom level, a child is not going to do anything or, or settle at all unless their basic needs are met. So do, is there a way for them to explain they need a toilet or they don't feel well or they're hungry or they're thirsty? <clears throat> is there a way to, to get those things across in the, in the very immediate beginning? Now, you might not be able to get basic needs cards out that quickly. Yeah. But thinking about that child's needs, really, if they're not able to express themselves. Moving forward, obviously, after day one, when you that evening after they've gone, there's loads of things you can get in place at that point. So you can think about the basic needs cards. You can mm -hmm. think about giving them the tour of the school. And, you know, sometimes children do the best tours because they show them yeah. that's the cupboard we're not allowed to go in. And yeah, that's yeah. that's where so-and-so sits. And, and it's really useful because they give the, ch the, the kids lots of different ideas. And yeah. a nice idea is a photo tour as well. So you can get them to take pictures as they go around. And then they stick them onto um, like a photo tour sheet, which they can take home and, it, and they can write together different bits yeah. about what's parts of the school. Making sure that their language is valued. So if say they are um, an Arabic speaker, mm -hmm. try and get some bits and pieces printed out for the classroom. Try and make them think, OK, this 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 isn't totally alien. Yeah. Um, if you were, went to a Chinese classroom and you saw a little bit of English on the wall, you might think, oh, you know, I can, this is, yeah. I can, it calms me a little bit. You know, I, they know that I don't speak this language. In fact, you're completely right. I think I mentioned this on the phone, but when, um, obviously, we went to Serbia a few months ago, uh, when I went uh, previously, which was six years ago, I kind of learned a little bit of it. And I appreciate it when they've written it in Latin, because often it's not. <laughs> um, yeah. It's interrelic. And if you can't remember what the what the different sounds are for the letters, then you actually can't read it at all. No. Whereas, you know, if the bakery is in Latin, then I can read it and I know that's what it is. Yes. Um, it's yeah. very... It's, it's unnerving, it, isn't it, when you don't have... You can't, it's very yeah. reassuring. Yeah. yeah. So when you've got that and you can see that, and it just makes that child think, kind of like they know, they know what I do speak. They know that that's my language and, you yeah. know, it's important that that's there. Um, but also thinking about just because a child does a child have no English that's another question to ask is it do we know that for sure have we got any information about what their background have we got any information about the previous educational sort of setup have they had any schooling it could be that this child's come on for example the gateway program which is the, the one for very vulnerable children and it might be that they've come from a refugee camp it might be that they've lost family members it might be the very last thing that they're thinking about is learning English so with those children it's literally about nurturing and it's about making them feel you're okay, you're here, you're safe, you know, this is a good place to be. If you've got a child that's come from, like we mentioned about perhaps the child of a doctor that's come across to work in the NHS, well, they might have had a really extensive education and they might have no worries about going into a school classroom and, and they totally understand the setup and they will need less of that nurturing and more, like we're getting into learning now and we're getting into, and, and it could be that they actually have more English. Do you feel, do you feel that there's quite a big difference between the children who have had formal education already even if they don't have any English in comparison to those that have had no formal yeah. education at all. Yeah, because it's just an understanding of this is, you know, if you haven't had any education before and then to go and sit in, in a classroom. Three classroom. So imagine, for example, imagine our, our children when they go into reception. If you actually put them into a year three classroom on that first day, they wouldn't, they'd be like, well, I, I want to get up and walk about. I don't want to sit here. I don't, you know, I don't understand. And for that, then it's another alien thing on top of the fact that they possibly, if they've had no education, they've probably had some trauma. Yeah. Um, and it's just too much. It's like overload. So it's thinking about that sort of Maslow's hierarchy. We've got to make sure the bottom is is done because without that, they and can't And when they learn. don't even have that understanding in their own language, they just don't. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. And again, important to, to think about what do they, how, have they, how do they do in the first language? So if a child has come and they... The parents have said they do very well in the first language, been doing well in school, you know, this is their favourite subject, this is what they like, find out about likes and interests, then you can tap into all of that and you can, and you've got something to go on. If you've got a child that's come and hasn't 
had any formal schooling or perhaps had an hour every week in a refugee camp, which we do have, then it's a totally different situation. And, and in those situations, you're thinking more about mental health and you're thinking about involving, you know, other other strategies. Yeah, yeah. How how would you sort of tackle that if, if the child has had, say they're in year three, they've had no formal schooling, really, they would be better suited sort of being in a reception yeah. class. How do you cater mm-hmm. for that in your classroom? Um, I think it's, again, we mentioned a little bit, didn't we, about having bringing some of the earlier stuff into the classroom. So it, again, it's it's about having that really and thinking, what could we bring in that they might be able to use, that they might be able to be drawn towards? Um, and it could just be that it's some Duplo, you know what I mean? So they yeah. might be able to say, right, when they need, they're learning, they're learning and they're sitting in the classroom and it's fine, but they need some time out. They need to go and they can go and they know they can go and do something over there. Um, an area that's a, a quiet space that they can go and sit in. Because we've got to remember that it's, it's also processing the processing the language even if they're not speaking very much they could be in that silent phase they need to be able to process that language yeah i suppose it's a like i've um got um i think she's maybe 15 months tomorrow um and it's the same thing isn't it she's processing that language she's learning it just by being around it and i guess it's it's the same thing isn't it Absolutely, just yeah. in older children yeah just need to be listening to it yeah i've got a nephew who is um coming up for two and he has developed a bit of a stutter, but actually it's it's because he's learned so many new words and his brain can't keep up. So he's trying to process all the new language. And it's very common in, in children like two and three that they, they they think more quickly than they can speak. And then they kind of fall over the words a little bit. And it's very, very common. And so if you imagine that we have to see these children, although they don't have additional needs in regards to special needs, they are like a toddler in that regard. So they're learning the language yeah. and we have to see them going through that process and making those mistakes. But they're like, how do we teach how do we teach our toddlers to speak well a lot of it they pick up yes and then we start using you know cards and flashcards and picture books and we point things out and it's the same yeah. process and it's thinking right well let's get some picture books let's get some dual language books let's get something that yeah. is going to help them be able to pick that up i guess sometimes we you know with babies we accept don't we that they're just going to pick it up as as time goes on but sometimes with a seven-year-old we kind of expect well why haven't you learned it yet yeah so it's thinking again about tiers of language so that's Isabel Beck's research on the tiers of vocabulary so you know you've got your tier one and tier two and tier three words and so you know in in regards to tier one words they're the words that babies pick up and children pick up and you just pick you know things like love and play and ball and then you've got tier three words which are the very technical words in subjects so things that you get in GCSE and things Mm -hmm. Um, or very scientific type words that you get in, in topic work. Um, and then you've got tier two words, which is all the words that are the most academic words. So those are the words that we need to make sure we're teaching to our EAL learners and our, our non-EAL learners as well. It is everybody's responsibility to teach language and to teach those words. And it's the tier two ones that often get neglected because we'll have our working war with our topic words and all our you know, yeah. canopic jar and all that kind of thing. And we'll have the big, we don't need to teach tier one words, they get them in the playground. But it's those tier two words in the middle and we have to think, right, we need to actually to teach these words. And that's the words you can kind of look at the etymology behind them, are there links between the languages that children are speaking. And it's really interesting to kind of drill into those words. And that's why it's so important to read books as well. Yes. To find those words. Because there's loads of the tier two words, even in picture books, loads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, thank you. Would you ever go back into teaching? Um, I would never say no. I, I enjoyed teaching and I, I had a very, because I had a varied teaching career because obviously I've taught in primary and secondary independent school state sector boarding school so you know I have a very varied sort of experience of working in schools and I really enjoyed certain parts of it there's certain things I think actually I would probably go back and do that or I might go and do that Mm -hmm. I am enjoying the flexibility I've got now and I'm enjoying the creativity of having my own sort of business and being able to 
get my thoughts out onto paper and think I can do this I'm going to create this and um, using your experience as yeah well, I guess, so yeah. You're, it's, it's it's a lot of years of experience of putting things down and saying right we, this is what we, I want to do this, this is really brilliant and I can pick the kids up and I can drop them off at school and so for me at this moment in time in my stage of life with three very young children no I wouldn't go back um but in the future I, I don't know maybe maybe um, okay, so I ask a lot of people this one. If you could wave a magic wand, how would you solve the life-work balance problem? Because obviously at Classroom Secrets, we're quite passionate about it. We've got yeah. a campaign. I've always said, and I still stand by this, it's a little saying, one day PPA. And I really think that there should be one day of PPA. I think all teachers should get it, not just NQTs. I think that it's important to be able to have enough time to prepare so that you're not going home and having to do things at night time or you, you, you can claim back some of your Sunday. Yeah. You're not thinking, oh, it's, I've had my Sunday lunch, I've got to Even sit down Even if you could now. just do the planning in one day and you had to worry about the books. Yeah. That would be more exactly. manageable, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah, and I think, and as well, I think that schools should allow um, teachers to take their PPA at home. Yeah. I've worked in both schools of both types where you were allowed to go home and you weren't allowed to go home. And it, I think that we are professionals and we and we should be able to be trusted to say, right, I have this amount of work to do. I'm going to go home and do it. Or actually, I'm quite on top of things and I'm going to go to the shop for an hour. And, and, and that's fine. I think that that PPA time should be seen as you time as well, being able to sort of think about looking after yeah. yourself and well-being. Because even if you went to the shop for an hour, if you had an appointment in that time, yeah. everybody knows you're going to do that work on a Sunday as well. Exactly. And you're going to do it every evening. Exactly. And yeah, I used to I have, so I, when I was working at um, the school in Manchester, it always, people never really liked it, but I used to get in really early. So I used to come in, I used to have to be in by seven, but then I used to literally go home pretty much at the end of the bell because I was trying to miss the traffic and I was going home to the kids. And I could, you could still hear the people sort of a little bit of a tuss as I went out the door at that time. But I'd been in an hour and a half before them in the morning and I knew I'd get the work done when the kids were in bed that evening. And so I think flexibility and being able to say, right, You have to be fine. able to cater for your own children as well. Exactly. But you see so many schools now. I see it on social media and people say, what time are you allowed to... You're not to allowed to leave till six? Leave? Yeah. What? And, I, and you just think, well, are we That is not child-friendly. Oh, yeah. We are either professionals or we're not. So yeah, I think and I'd sort of say, it. well, don't expect me to work on a Sunday then either. Exactly, because I've know. got my kids, and you know. So I, that's, that's mine. One day PPA. Yeah, I've always said. I'm with you because I actually um, one of my things I think would solve it. And to be fair, I don't think we're ever going to afford it. But I actually think it'd be really nice to have two teachers per class, um, where. You know, I mean, maybe they take it in turns. I don't know, but one teacher maybe does the mornings and one teacher does the afternoons. It would be amazing. I think that's what you need in order to have time to mark. And, you know, and I'm not talking about doing a nine till three either. No. I think it's sensible to expect an eight four. But I actually think you need that much time. You yeah, because double the amount of we time. We do an eight four, but then teachers go home and work in the evenings and they work on Sundays. And you need double the amount of time. It amazes me how many people, how much traffic I get on my website on a Sunday. It's the busiest day of the week. And it, yeah. it makes me sad as well because I think oh, all those people are sitting there clearly planning or panicking about the next day and I've got that yeah. Monday morning blues feeling and they're thinking I need to find something and we, that's what we need to try and sort of combat really I think it's important that teachers have enough time in the week to go to an appointment to do the planning and marking to you know just actually think about well-being for themselves as well as you know we have that two and a half hours that's all you get in PPA you literally cram everything you can into that time yeah and when you're in school sometimes or even if it's a shared PPA room and somebody's talking well, what is the point? I, I used to find myself talking. I was always that person with the brew would be like chatting about something. And then Which think, is why oh, you wanted to do it at home. Yeah, I'd go home, I'd get it done. And what I could do at home in, in an hour I would is much more than I could do in school in two hours. And that's what I found. 
Yeah. So yeah, I just think giving more time, think about well-being. Yeah, I agree. I think I think the answer is time as well. Um, who was your favourite teacher and why? Well, this is a funny one because I actually didn't go to school. Oh. <laughs> this is a new one for you. I was taught at home. Uh, I was home educated until I was um, through high school, through GCSEs. Mm -hmm. I went to college after that. So uh, yeah, a bit of a random one. My, my dad was a head teacher. Um, he just didn't really massively like the way education was going, even all that time ago. I think he foresaw thoughts that was coming um, and he just decided no we're going to do it this way and we were some of the early early pioneers really of home education it's, it's much more popular now I think it's much more common now um, and sometimes people look at you and go well aren't you a bit weird and it's like well you decide you know I don't, I don't know I, have you not got any social skills well you know I think we're okay but I could have to say really that my dad was therefore my my favorite teacher that I ever had because um, yeah. they so literally did he teach you at home mum he did a lot of the planning and sorting you know that kind of we did a lot of our own it made us very independent learners yeah um, but Mum was there a lot. She was a nurse. She worked nights because we, she had us in the day. I mean, I can't, looking back as a parent now, I cannot understand how they did, did it. it. And I'm so, you know, I'm amazed and I'm honoured that they basically decided that's what they wanted to do. And they had three of us at home at the time. Wow. Um, and it was a massive commitment. And people say, would you do it for your own children? And what I would do is I would do flexible mm -hmm. schooling. So I, the ideal for me, I, I couldn't do full-time home education. I couldn't because I just I haven't got the patience. And I had yeah. it's such a commitment. Yeah. But I do like the idea of... And it's difficult when they're different ages yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's really hard. And like, we took GCSEs early. We did, you know, I did the first, my first GCSE. I was about 13 when I did the first one. That's why I ended up doing Latin, because I just liked it, you know, and I did yeah. random subjects. I had to sit my GCSEs in an all-boys school. Right. Yeah, that was interesting. Um, so, yeah, I think, for me, I would I would do flexible schooling for my kids. If, I, if it was an option, they could go into school for three days and have two days where I taught them and it was a lot more forest school stuff, a lot more outdoor. I'm very keen on outdoor learning, outdoor education and things, but it's not an option. So, yeah, so that's... So for me, it's a bit of a random question and a bit of a random... There you go. Yeah, I'm really pleased that I asked you that now <laughs> because... Really entitled. My husband did say to me this morning, are you actually going to tell me? Uh, yeah. I think... It's important. You have and to I, do what works I think for it's you really interesting as well that you were homeschooled, but then you became a teacher. Um, so that must be really interesting for you, never reverting back to your own experience. As yeah, such. exactly. And so people do say, "What you know? What about this? What about that?" And I always have to say, "Hmm." So I did go to college, but that's very different. It was a yeah. sixth form college, and it was totally different. Um, again, that was a bit of a baptism of fire for me because I had to go and sit in a big class of students. And yeah, and you'd never done that. Oh. And I, um, I mean, I've looked into it before. Not necessarily that I wanted to do it, but um, I used to tutor, so I've looked into it. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I find interesting is that you don't have to teach for the same amount of time because it's one-on-one. Oh, no. -on -one. No. Um, so the children could just have like, we, know, we had maybe do like off. two and a half we days a week. We had most afternoons off, so we used to get up early. We used to do ours. We would have sets around we would we would want to get through, but you get through tons because in yeah. the end, you're motivated to do it and you're not being distracted by anything else. And um, yeah, we didn't, I, I would say I probably didn't start formal education, honestly, until I was about seven. Mm -hmm. You know, we did a lot of informal things. We did a lot of learning and we learned loads of stuff, you know, yeah. because we got taken to loads of places and we yeah. and we did loads of real life situations, you know. Yeah. And then even, I don't really even know if I was seven, but to be honest, at the time, you don't have to follow a curriculum no. if you're home educating. Um, sometimes the local authority takes a bit of an interest in certain things, but in general, you don't have to. Um, and so... I think probably because my dad was a teacher as well, they, they sort of left us to it. And, and we've all done brilliantly well. We all did GCSEs, we all did A-levels. Um, we all went to uni. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. we're okay. Cool, so interesting, thank you. Um, what do you wish you'd know when you first started out in teaching? Um, that 
in schools, you'll find people, in almost all schools, you'll find negative people who try to bring you down. I think that it's an, as an early teacher, you can get sucked in by these people and it can bring you down. And I think you really just need to really head towards people that are positive, find support within schools if you can. If the school is not, if the school is more negative than it is positive, then move to another school. It doesn't mean that teaching is not for you. It just means you've not found the right school. Yeah, thank you. Um, okay, what are the three biggest changes you've seen in education during your time in it? Um, increase in testing and a, a kind of, I think, a real focus on testing our young people. I think that's a bit, it's just, it just keeps getting more and more. Um, I think, I think the the influence and the impact of politics and, and, and the way that the government is kind of mm-hmm. using education, it seems to always be that that's in different, you know, when different parties are coming in and things, it's always education. And actually, I don't think it should be. I think that um, we should be able to, Schools should be able to do more of their own of their own thing, really. And uh, the third one I'd say is just sadly, probably on the back of both of them, is the, the amount of mental health issues of teaching and, and sort of the, the the problems that people are going through and, and the retention yeah. of staff. Yeah, the pressure. It's too much pressure, and you know, even from when I started twelve years ago, it's changed dramatically. I think there was so much more pressure on on teachers, young teachers. Mm-hmm. You know, this thing about you've got to stay in school till five o'clock. You can't. You've got to be in by seven thirty or seven forty-five. It's not realistic. And it's no. not professional. And if you look at what other schools, other countries do, they see teachers in a far, they put them on a pedestal. Yeah, in some, some, in some countries. Do, yeah. And they, and they, you know, that's the profession you aim for. And they are seen in a very different way. And I think sometimes, sadly, teachers are still seen as people that look after children for the day. And it's just... It's childcare it's, services. It's childcare services, well, yeah. So and it isn't really. And I, I think, yeah, they would be the three, I think. And I think that the mental health one comes on the back of the other ones. So... With that in mind, where do you think education needs to go in the next 10 years? <clears throat> it's, it's really hard. I think it's just, I think we really need to focus on workload and I think we need to focus on work-life balance. I think that that's what has to be, has to come back. Thinking about, um, I was talking to my dad last night who was a teacher and a head teacher and he, he started in the days before national curriculum and, you know, it was very different and he said he used to love the fact that you'd be doing a lesson and then and then a, a ladybird would come in the room and then suddenly everything would change you'd be starting talking about a ladybird for a while and, you, and you'd do something about you know insects and you know that creativity I think teachers have lost that ability to be creative practitioners yeah so I think that that's the kind of thing you do with your children isn't it yeah. and, and and that's the kind of thing that you'll, your child your own child will be interested in at that remember. point yeah, yeah. And that's what they remember I think that you know if you ask a child what they did on that day and say a wasp had come in the class, that's what they remember. They remember the wasp came in and yeah. that's what they will come home and tell you about the wasp, something that's spontaneous and interesting and just got their attention. Mm-hmm. So I think in the next 10 years, we've just got to really think about um, how can we make teachers want to teach? How can we allow them to have that creativity whilst you know at the same time maintaining a high level of, of, of standard of education? But is there a way that we can do that? Can we be more creative? And can and can the government have less of a say really in education? I think that they are. There's too much control. Head teachers have lost too much control. It used to be that the head teachers had lots more discretion and were able to do different things. And yeah, they have lost a lot of control, and then they've also got a lot of pressure. It's very difficult, and then they're trying to to run a team with all those pressures. But um, sometimes I think you know these great ideas that we have. That is a great idea. You know, can you know could a teacher sort of go back to that and be creative? And it's and it's finding somebody who's brave enough to pioneer that. And also, that really can't be somebody in a state school. It'd have to be an independent school. 
And then everybody's got to be on board with <laughs> yeah. that. Um, who's paying for it's that? Just one of those, it's like an overhaul. It just needs to. There has to be an overhaul, and I don't know. I don't know how. It's like that magic wand thing, really. That's what I think. I think if we continue down the path that we're going, mm. we're going to have a massive retention issue. I think we're going to have real problems, and there's all well, this stuff. Most about... teachers now have only been three years. Exactly. Yeah, and it used to be five years when I started. It was five, and it's yeah. dropped to three. Um, and it, it's just unbelievable how many people you see on social media saying, "What? Those of you that have left teaching, what are you doing now?" And it just depresses me. I think. Yeah, all the time. All in the fact, time. we were on the same post of that. Yeah. Yeah. We were both saying that we'd done something different, but it, and it is. I think it gives people hope, but at the same time, I'd, I'd like to think that it was a good profession to be in, and that we're not trying to say, "Well, we'll give you know this whole, we'll give them thirty thousand pounds for NQTs." Yeah. You know, throw money at it; it's not going to make it a nice place to be. No, and it's not going to, you know, even if you throw money at it at the beginning it's not going to see you through. It's not going to mean that you can stay longer. Yeah. The the money's not going to do anything. And also, I think in on those threads, like you obviously put about EAL Hub and, and I said about educational publishing, and as much as that might give them hope, does it really? Because it's actually really hard <laughs> and you basically don't take a salary no. for a long time. No. Um, and actually, that's not a viable option for a lot of people. No. Um, so as much as we can write that on, it's not really a viable thing. No. And, and I'd like to see, and I used to say this before I even started across some secrets, I'd like to see there's some kind of, um, we shouldn't really be encouraging teachers to leave teaching, but I also want to rescue them. Yeah. Um, knowing their experience, and I feel like I left before it was as bad as it is now. But, you know, teachers could be good managers if there was some kind of night school <laughs> that they could go to to, le to learn yeah. how to transfer transfer those skills. And I feel like, it's difficult for businesses to to appreciate what skills they could take over. It's hard for teachers to leave teaching, yeah, because it it's is such hard. a specialised job. And you can, you know, I've a couple of the freelance writers that work for me. They have left teaching and are doing this, you know, instead of I'm sure you've got people who've left teaching to come and work for you. And I think yeah, those sorts of com you know the companies like that and. It, there, there are some options around that, but like, like you said, are we meant to be encouraging them to leave? And it's sad that we that so many people are looking for a way to leave, but it isn't easy. It isn't easy going your own way. Um, and also, I, I entered into doing EAL Hub for a work-life balance, and actually, I've probably had the hardest year yes. of my life. I've seen less of my kids and less of my husband, yes. and um, it's just it's, been... It's very different. Yeah, and it's settling down now. And but you want to do it for a different reason, though. Exactly. But it's hard to, to actually hold yourself back when you're quite driven, isn't it? So it's sort of finding that balance. Yeah. And also, I think when you've learnt how to work as a teacher, um, that's the most difficult thing, because um, I think a lot... A lot of the teachers who, who come here in the first week in particular, they go home in an evening and they're like, I don't know what, what do? to do now. Um, and, and I feel like in a way it ruins you. Like I can't sit there and feel watch something on television yeah. and not do anything yeah. because I'm bored. Because you feel, yeah. You, and, you feel, and I think you can you can get back into that. You can definitely get it back. I, I worked all summer this summer and I, the last two weeks I haven't done anything in the evenings and it felt weird. It's I sat there and I watched stuff on telly and I think, yeah. I do feel like I should be doing something. I actually feel bad. I actually feel guilty that I'm not working, which is mad. It's absolutely mad. But that's what we put into teachers. Teachers need to be working at night. And if you're not working at night or you're not working on a Sunday, you're probably right. not doing enough. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the problem. Yeah, no, you're completely right. Um, okay, so who's your inspiration within education? Ooh, uh, there's loads. I would say absolutely loads of people on Edge's Twitter. I love Twitter. I think that uh, everybody should be on it. I think it's brilliant. Um, if I had to name one person that's helped me a lot in the last probably three or four months in particular it would be John Murray I think that he has 
just he was brilliant absolutely yeah. brilliant yeah he has just been there for me and he's just been this like, i've been able to ask him things and he's come back with ideas and i've you know bounced things back and forth and yesterday i taught him something so i feel so you know i feel like i've i've given back a tiny bit of what's <laughs> been offered but i just think people like him are uh, and there's loads of others like it as well but people that are there as sounding boards to, and are genuinely there to give you good advice they have no ulterior to like ulterior motives they're not in it for themselves they're in it to help you as a person to grow and to develop yeah. they are the people i look up to now in education and i think it's easy to get sucked in by other people and to and to think that they are out for your best interest and they're not mm. so i just say twitter is brilliant you know some people on there are not brilliant some people on there are absolutely brilliant um but so far my experience has been really really positive so just um sign up to it have a look but um just take it. Yeah, and don't be afraid well. of the mute button. I use the mute button quite a lot. I get involved in threads and things. And I'm good at Twitter. You need to give me a lesson. Yeah, I don't see your stuff on Twitter very much. You need to. It's That's on Facebook because, a lot. Um, we, I don't do the Twitter one. Um, I don't really know how to use it very well. It is good. It's good for education and it's good for certain, like like for business and things. And it's good for getting things out there and, and just getting brilliant ideas. You, you ask a question, you want a question answered, you put it out there and you'll just get experts and you get in touch with people who you think I could never speak to that person normally because yeah I mean David Walliams followed me on Twitter wow like, you yeah. see this is why I need to get better um, was it actually him yeah this is really good yeah. it's yeah. because it came on the back of my little boy wrote a book um, and it went out with a little uh, book about it was about the feelings and emotions of a lighthouse and it was brilliant little book he's seven and he illustrated it and David Williams saw it and he, and he followed me as a result and liked it and it had h h thousands of likes on that post in the end. That's amazing. And my, my little boy was like, so am I famous? I was like, yeah, <laughs> you are. You are famous. So yeah, it's gone brilliant. viral. It's absolutely brilliant because you can get in touch with authors, you can get in touch with people yeah. who normally you couldn't just pick up the phone and say, can I have a chat? But yeah. actually you can and you find yourself messaging people. And think, sometimes oh, it's actually happening? them as well. It, it, it almost always is, especially in the education and, and authors and that kind of thing. It almost yeah. always is yeah. the people that you want it to be. Right, we're going to have a conversation about Twitter in about five minutes. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me, you for um, me on the Teachers Podcast. It wasn't as scary as I thought. No, it was really good. We just had a nice conversation. Um, yes, thank you. Right, it's time for us to get a cup of tea now. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope that you took away some little nuggets of gold to help you in the classroom, even if you don't have any EAL children in your class. It's so important that we take each child on an individual level, and just as Beth said, EAL children are not necessarily SEN. Often they are capable learners and they just need time. You'll find everything that Beth talked about in the show notes, and let me know which other experts you'd like to hear from and what you'd like me to ask them. If it's the first time you're listening to the Teachers Podcast, check out our other episodes for some more great listens. We've been securing some more fantastic guests for you. And if you want to request that someone is on the podcast, you can let us know in the Facebook group called the Teachers Podcast Community. The episode is now live on YouTube, so don't forget to subscribe to the channel. And did you love this episode? Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. See you next week. Thank you for listening. The Teachers Podcast is in association with Classroom Secrets, a provider of high quality and affordable teaching resources that children love and teachers trust. To find out more, visit classroomsecrets.co.uk.